Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. A giant thank you to Regina Ebner from Maine, USA for her very generous contribution to the podcast via PayPal. Regina will be receiving a True Blue Crime Productions thank you package complete with t-shirt, can koozie, a thank you card from the host, and some other small items. So thanks again Regina. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, just like Regina, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host, as well as some cool True Blue Crime merch, depending on the donation level. For no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The Mojave Desert, located in the southwestern United States, is 20 million acres of mostly desolate wasteland. The extreme climate of the area made it an area of avoidance during westward expansion, and this is especially true of the area known as Death Valley. In 1849, a group of pioneers headed to California for the gold rush and got lost in the desert during the winter of 1849 to 1850. Forced to slaughter and eat their oxen and dismantle their wagons for firewood, the group lost one member before they were rescued by some scouts that led them on foot out of the valley. As legend has it, one of the members of the group turned to face the valley while leaving and said, Goodbye, Death Valley. Roughly 80 years later, a small town in the desert called Las Vegas became an escape from East Coast law enforcement for the Mafia, and soon casinos and hotels were built along the now-famous Las Vegas Strip. But while the natural beauty of the desert in areas like Death Valley and Joshua Tree National Park and the entertainment of Las Vegas draws millions of visitors to the desert each year, the sand and rock of this expansive area is often used to hide the bodies of homicide victims. According to research, the Mojave Desert is the number one location in America for finding homicide victims. As of 2016, roughly 150 bodies have been discovered in the stretch between Victorville, California and Las Vegas, Nevada. In 2013, four of those bodies belonged to the missing McStay family from Fallbrook, California. The family was reported missing in 2010, and for three long years, their story was filled with rumor and speculation, but with the discovery of their bodies in the hot desert sand, the investigation would reveal their horrifying ordeal, and the hunt for justice would bring some closure to this terrible tale. In 2010, 40-year-old Joseph McStay, his 43-year-old wife, Summer McStay, and their Sons, four-year-old Gianni and three-year-old Joseph Jr., lived in a middle-class neighborhood in Fallbrook, California. Their community in the northern San Diego County was known as, quote, the Friendly Village, unquote. They had purchased their home the year prior during the heart of the housing mortgage crisis. The home was a foreclosure and needed some work, but it was priced at $320,000, a steal for a single-family home in that part of California. Joseph loved the view of the mountains, but it was said that Summer was not a fan of the neighborhood's location as it was too close to a truck stop. But for $320,000 in California, you can't be too picky. It was said that the family got to work immediately with renovating the home. 
This was the time of foreclosures, and many homes were either damaged or gutted by their former owners as an act of revenge against the bank. It didn't say this was the case with the McStays, but they opted for new countertops, appliances, etc. They had hoped to flip the house in a few years and use the proceeds to buy something closer to the ocean, as Joseph loved to surf and wanted to teach his boys the sport. It's hard to pay the bills through surfing, so Joseph Sr. had built a successful indoor water fountain design installation company. His water features adorned the lobbies of posh businesses, hotels, and high-end homes in the area. Water has always been a sign of wealth and prosperity in the desert, and Joseph made a good living running a company that allowed people to show off that aquatic wealth inside of buildings. His wife Summer, who was legally born Virginia Lisa Aranda, went by Summer Martelli and then Summer McStay, and she was a licensed real estate agent and spent time raising their two boys. So again, I often like to step aside from the story and just try to put people into the time period. Uh, this was 2010, so I know it's 13 years ago, but if you guys can recall, this was when all of the adjustable rate mortgages and subprime mortgages, all that kind of stuff, kind of came to a head in the late 2000s, and suddenly the market was just filled with a bunch of homes that people couldn't afford to pay their mortgages on anymore when their interest rates went up, and... The result of having way too much supply and not enough demand was that these housing prices fell. And it was even difficult for these real estate agents, people like Summer, to actually make sales on homes because even if you wanted to buy into one of these foreclosures, you had to be willing or usually able to sell your existing home. And then at the time, all these mortgage companies, they're licking their wounds from all these bad mortgages. So even getting a mortgage was difficult. So all in all, this is just was a difficult time. It was probably the right time for Summer to be home raising these boys and not working. It didn't seem like she was working a lot as a real estate agent at this point. But meanwhile, Joseph has this company and I said it you know, I kind of called it a water fountain company, and that's selling it short. It was these, these water features, so a lot of the times it was waterfalls, moving water through um, you know, fake types of structures, basically just create that babbling brook sound in the lobby of a, of a hotel or a business or whatever it might be. And he was a little bit on the design side but a lot on covering the business side and he had workers for him that did the actual installation of fabrication and, and that stuff because you had to you know frame out these uh, features run the pumps and water through them and all that kind of stuff but from all sounds of it his company was doing pretty well he was had secured some pretty good contracts with, with different uh, high-end companies and, and life was going pretty good for the mixed days uh, in late 2009, early 2010. And on January 28, 2010, someone did a search on the mixed days home computer for travel information from Mexico and obtaining passports for children. This search would become a focal point during the investigation into their upcoming disappearance. Three days later, on January 31st, they celebrated Joseph Jr. turning three years old, and just four days later, no one would ever see the family alive again. On February 4th, 2010, Joseph was talking to his father, Patrick, 
in the late morning hours when Joseph mentioned he needed to end the conversation as he was running late for a work-based lunch meeting. He was meeting with a work associate named Charles Merritt at a Chick-fil-A in Rancho Cucamonga and then planned on returning to his house. While Joseph was at his work meeting, Summer was at home doing some house projects and taking care of the boys. She was texting her sister, who had recently had a baby, and then around 5.47 p.m., all communication with Joseph and Summer ceased. Family members attempted to contact the couple over the next few days and found it disturbing that their calls, texts, and emails were not returned. The McStays were normally very social and very close to their family and were not the type of people to just stop socializing for days. However, they were known to take small trips with the boys. Joseph's job gave him the flexibility to work around his schedule and enjoy time with the family, so it wasn't completely unheard of that the family would go for a short, impromptu trip. As a result, family members kept their physical distance, respecting their loved one's privacy until suspicion and fear finally took over. On February 10th, six days since anybody had had contact with them, a work associate that hadn't heard from Joseph about a job notified the San Diego County Sheriff's Office of the strange circumstances. Deputies did a welfare check on the family home and found it secure with no sign of any issues. And I know we've talked about this before, these welfare checks. Um, they're very, can be very difficult for law enforcement. Oftentimes they're going into these situations completely blind. And the welfare check can be for one of many reasons. It could be someone who has mental health issues or just regular health issues that somebody hasn't heard from in a while. It could be a friend who's calling because their friend had broken up with somebody recently and now they aren't hearing from this person. It could be a ex-boyfriend calling because he hasn't heard from his ex-girlfriend. And and sometimes they're abused. Sometimes these, these check welfares can be done where we often had it where the you know, parents are going through a divorce, the kids are with one parent, and the other parent calls in a check welfare on their children because the mother or father that the children are with won't let the children talk on the phone. And this is one of those, again, those one of those gray areas because it's not as if a crime is being committed, or at least a crime is known to have been committed. So officers have to take whatever information they get and and they don't even know if the information they're getting is true because sometimes people will lie or at the very least stretch the truth to try to get a more rapid response out of law enforcement or if they feel like law enforcement might not check out this welfare situation if it's not dramatic enough they'll add some drama to it so a lot of the times law enforcement is going into this welfare check completely blind and again it can be for one of 50 different reasons why this this check welfare is going on now in this case it's one of those lack of contact check welfares and in most cases law enforcement is going to do this now it's not going to be a priority call by any means because if they haven't been heard from in six days what is another few hours if, if the call has to wait for an officer to get there but ultimately officers will go do this welfare check but since there is no indication of a crime, now remember when we did the killer grandma case, that was a check welfare in Minnesota where the officers found the open bathroom window and then one boosted the other one up and saw the dead body inside. And 
the same can be said uh, for I think a few other cases we've covered where these check welfares result in the police officers doing the check where welfare finding a victim of a crime inside this home that's why they're not answering but sometimes I would respond to these check welfares and some people like their privacy and all the windows were drawn the the blinds drawn whatever it might be doors locked windows shut there's no indication that a crime occurred I can't see anything inside the home that's out of place and unless I have some really good intel that something is going on inside that house or something could have gone on inside that house sometimes it would be to the point of you know somebody's talking to somebody on the phone and all of a sudden the phone disconnects and now they can't get a hold of this person again now in most of those cases we would treat it more as an emergent situation and get there just in case it was a medical emergency or whatever and nine times out of ten it would be that the person's cell phone died or another important call came in or whatever might be and they're going to get back to this other person um so again it can be for a variety of things but ultimately if law enforcement gets there and all the windows are intact nothing's broken doors aren't kicked in house is secure there's no sign of you know any any crime at all that limits law enforcement's ability to do anything beyond that and that's what's going to happen in this case they're going to respond out to the house they're not going to force entry into the home because they don't know what's going on and they're going to let the reporting party know that nothing looks out of the ordinary and no law enforcement action can take place and then three days later on february 13th joseph's brother mike mistay concerned about the lack of contact with his brother's family drove to the house in fallbrook not wanting to do any damage to the home, Mike found an unlocked window that he was able to open and climb inside the home. What he found inside the home was both a relief and new grounds for worry. While Mike had to be fearful that he would find a grisly scene with four bodies, he instead found the family was not in the house, and their dogs were alive, but he wasn't sure if they'd been eating, and it didn't appear that they'd been fed and there was rotten food left on the counter as if the family was preparing dinner and then just disappeared. But still, he wasn't ready to report them missing. It was President's Day weekend, and there was a small chance they decided to do a last-minute trip somewhere and had just left some items out and someone was going to come feed the dogs at some point. And that's, again, the really difficult thing here because even when the brother makes entry into the home, now he's in there, the family's not there, they're, they're thankfully not found murdered inside the home, and frankly, if they had been, the, the story wouldn't have gotten the national news that it did. But he goes into this home, and even with, I think there was some eggs that were left out on the counter, some fruit that had gone bad, uh, the, it looked like the kids had been eating popcorn while watching a movie. Basically, it looked as almost as if you remove the rotten part of things, like the family could have been there. But... And I'm guessing the dogs aren't emaciated. It's not like they're starving to death. They're probably just hungry. And some dogs are always hungry. So the brother might have thought, hey, somebody's been stopping by to feed these dogs. But I would question whether the dogs would have been let out. There probably would have been some you know, several accidents inside the home. And unless that's how you normally live your life, letting the dogs go to the bathroom inside the house, like maybe that would have been a bit of a head scratcher as to it doesn't look like anybody's actively letting these dogs out. Or, or maybe the dogs were outside and 
and that was odd. I'd, again, there's not a whole lot of details about when he went to the house other than he noted that the family wasn't there and it looks like they just kind of up and left. And we've talked about in the past, especially with the the Watts family in Colorado, it's not always what is in the home, it's what's missing. And sometimes it's a combination of both. And in this case, it was Summer's prescription sunglasses were in the house, something that she wouldn't usually go somewhere without, but there's a vehicle missing, there's vehicle keys missing. I assume her purse was missing. Joseph's wallet is missing. So you can imagine putting yourself in Joseph's brother's shoes here and kind of just saying, yeah, some of this doesn't look good, but at the same time, some of it can be explained. They like to go on these impromptu trips. Maybe they last minute booked something real quick and had to run out of the house and for whatever reason we can't get a hold of them maybe they're in a place without cell phone reception you know it just you start running through all these possibilities in your brain and because it's this holiday weekend he's gonna you know give it through the weekend and if they still aren't back by monday he's gonna call which is what happens after two more days without any communication the family made the decision to report joseph summer and the children as missing it was now February 15th, and no one in the family had seen or heard from the four McStays in 11 days. The police department took the missing person's report, and then after some initial investigation, they decided to obtain a search warrant for the family home in Fallbrook. On February 19th, the search warrant was carried out, and homicide investigators were at a loss as to what happened to the family. There was no blood or signs of a struggle in the house, and as I mentioned before, some items were missing that would have indicated the family left on some sort of last second vacation, but other items such as Summer's prescription sunglasses were left out, an item she would eventually need. And again, we've all done it. You've left for vacation and left the one thing you absolutely told yourself you weren't going to forget right on the kitchen counter. So it happens. It's not like it was you know, medications that are absolutely required like was in the case in the watts case and in that case the vehicle was still there everything like that so again investigators are looking at it and and they're expecting to get in there and finding blood spatter or something to indicate that a crime of violence occurred inside the house and then maybe the family was taken from the house uh you know a burglary gone wrong a, a home invasion robbery something along those lines but they're getting in there and there's no sign of a crime of violence. There's no sign that the house was broken into. Again, the, the welfare check from the, the week prior. It just it honestly looks like this family just up and vanished. And security footage from a neighbor's camera caught the bottom foot and a half of the family's SUV driving away from the house on February 4th at 7.47 p.m. Joseph's phone call made a call 40 minutes later, around 4.30 p.m., to a work associate, but that work associate failed to answer the call. So investigators began backtracking the family's actions before February 4th. This is when they located the search on the computer about Mexico, and Summer had requested information about passports for the children, and this led them to catch a huge break when they found out the family's white 1996 Isuzu Trooper SUV was found in a strip mall parking lot on February 8th near a border crossing with Mexico in Southern California. 
and this vehicle had been impounded as an abandoned vehicle. So suspecting the family may have inexplicably traveled to the border and then walked into Mexico, investigators reviewed footage at the border crossing for the days after the family disappeared from Fallbrook. On March 5th, investigators located a segment of border crossing video that showed a family of four walking from the U.S. side into Mexico at 7 p.m. on February 8th. This was the day the family vehicle was impounded. A check of the impound record shows the SUV was in the lot around 6 p.m. that day, which, combined with the family's internet search history about entering Mexico, was enough to make investigators wonder if this entire case was the result of a family intentionally disappearing. And this is what's going to be really troubling for this case, is, again, up until this point, and at this point, they have no evidence that a crime has occurred. Somebody could logically make the argument that, for whatever reason, they decided that they were just going to up and go to Mexico for a couple weeks as a family. And does it make a lot of sense that they're going to leave their car behind and walk into Mexico? No. But is there anything illegal or criminal about it? No. It's just, it just kind of a head-scratcher. But at the same time, you've got search histories for passports for the children. You've got search histories about Mexico. You've got all this stuff leading to believe that this family had maybe prepared for a trip to Mexico. And then you're finding their vehicle... And then this video showed two adults and two children walking into the border crossing. And although the video was of low quality, the adult female appeared to be wearing Ugg boots, which was consistent with Summer's choice of footwear. She was also wearing a white jacket, an article of clothing owned by Summer. But again, the video was grainy, and while some family members believed the family could be the McStays, others disputed the likeness and said the adults weren't walking like Joseph and Summer walked. And that's the thing, you know, this is 2010, this is border video, it's February, and it's getting you know, later in the evening, it's likely dark. Security videos don't work great at night, you lose a lot of uh, detail as the, as the uh, camera is trying to capture, you know, whatever detail it can. And so even with this border crossing video, which I kind of assumed would be better video, at a border crossing but even with this video the low quality of it just made it so that people were on the fence they either believed it was the family and that they walked into mexico and then that's where the story kind of has to go from here or there's other people saying it's just a giant coincidence that this family of four adult male adult female and two small children happened to be in the same area walking to Mexico around the same time this vehicle was abandoned. So investigators were leaning more towards the voluntary disappearance while the family is still saying something's not right here. A search of the SUV failed to turn up any signs of foul play. The children's car seats were in place in the vehicle and their new toys from Joseph Jr.'s recent birthday. But slightly troubling was some asthma medication that was left in the vehicle on the floor. And again, this we come back to, if somebody wants to voluntarily disappear, again, nothing illegal about it, but most people, especially parents of two small children, this guy is a business owner, you know, she was a licensed real estate agent, they're, they're intelligent people that have made good decisions in their life. So to decide to just abandon your life, abandon your vehicle, and walk into Mexico is one thing. But to do it with something like an asthma medication left behind just 
again, it's just another one of those things that I think tips the tips the scale onto something's not right here. And during further searches of the family's internet history, it was discovered that in December of 2009, Summer had been searching for Spanish language software. So now, investigators believe with all outward appearances that it looked like the family had been planning to leave their life in California behind to start a new one in Mexico. But family members refused to believe that Joseph and Summer would abandon their home and their dogs and leave without telling anyone. And investigators also had to consider that Joseph had a teenage son from a previous marriage that lived with his mother in San Diego. And if the McStays had abandoned their old life, they would have had to be okay with Joseph abandoning his oldest son. And if they had abandoned their old life, which included their house, two other vehicles, their dogs, $100,000 in the bank, why did they wait four days before they went into Mexico? Yet it appeared they left the house in an immediate hurry. So you're going to have, again, every time you start to think you kind of maybe understand that they maybe did leave on their own you're finding all these things about what they left behind that indicates this isn't something that somebody would normally do now it doesn't mean that's not something that nobody would do and that has to be taken into account as well but it's just not common sense and again we talked about them purchasing this house and they had plans to flip the house and they'd been working on this house you know to get it ready to sell in a few years to make enough money to move back down to the beach so that uh, Joseph could be closer to surfing and teach his boys to surf. So they have all these plans, these grandiose plans that revolve around this house in California and the family's all close by and all this kind of stuff. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to just up and leave all this stuff and, and walk away from it. And again, if that vehicle showed up on the evening of, of February 4th, and you could time out the time it took to drive from their house in Fallbrook to this border crossing, and the time the vehicle's impounded roughly matches up to how long it would take them to drive there, then I guess you could start to wonder what would have prompted such a immediate exit from the country from these from this family, but it would make more sense, drop everything all at once in the house, run out the door basically, hop in your vehicle, drive to the border, leave the vehicle there and walk in again that would make more sense of i don't understand what they'd be fleeing but that would be some more like they're fleeing their old life waiting four days to cross into the border but then leaving stuff behind in the house leaving stuff behind in the vehicle but you, you have four days it just again that doesn't make sense so the fbi got involved in the case on march 30th Investigators were already working with Mexican authorities, but the addition of the FBI would help strengthen the cooperation between the two countries. What followed was months of leads, reported sightings, but no solid proof the family was seen anywhere, and they were not located by authorities in either country. And internet sleuths started breaking down all the different angles. And this is where fans of true crime, I, I totally get it, uh, a lot of people hop onto places like Reddit or different websites that are dedicated to things like true crime and they'll break down all their different theories. And and sometimes it's really helpful because sometimes some of the craziest theories turn out to be the ones in the end that are accurate. But a lot of the times it's just rumor and speculation and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, everybody 
wants to try to help how they want to help and it really doesn't hurt anybody if you're just putting out your opinion out there um but this is what kind of happened and it was reported that joseph senior had dizzy spells so people immediately went to speculate everything from he had some form of a mental breakdown to seeking alternative medicine options that were available in mexico but not legal in the united states and the one thing that didn't come up and this probably speaks volumes about what people thought of joseph at least it didn't come up in the investigation around the time that they went missing is we have seen a few cases chris watts is one uh, there's some other as i might cover down the road here that are what are called family annihilators and that's where it's usually the the patriarch of the family will murder everybody else murders wife murders children sometimes mother-in-laws parents whatever it might be and just disappear and go try to start a new life and sometimes it's because of a romantic interest sometimes it's financially motivated whatever it might be and there's a couple famous cases where these these guys are found like 20 years later living a completely different life again which we'll cover at some point so there had to be some speculation too there does joseph senior have a complete and utter mental breakdown does he annihilate his family and then you know they're only looking for families of four walking into mexico it's going to be much harder to notice a lone male walking on foot into mexico if he annihilated his family parked at the strip mall and then walked into mexico to evade authorities there's a good chance he's going to be very difficult to find so these dizzy spells this mental breakdown that could go down that route if you decide you're going to go down into speculation land um like i said seeking medical help there's prescription drugs that aren't fda approved that you can get in other countries that or, or holistic approaches that are done in other countries that aren't approved in in america that people might try to seek some some form of medi medication so people had all these different potential thoughts as to why this could revolve around Joseph Sr. And then, as I mentioned before, I didn't find a lot of reasoning behind this, but Summer's birth name was actually Virginia. That was her first name. And she had used at least two aliases during her life. So some wondered if the family was part of some form of witness protection program and was being kept safe somewhere under new names and identities. And this was a rumor law enforcement quickly stated was not true, but again, people are going to look at it and say, well, of course law enforcement is saying that is because part of witness protection is that you don't divulge more information about these people you're trying to protect. So, like I said, some people thought, you know, maybe it was Summer was part of some type of a witness protection program. That's why her name was changed several times. And then when she married into this family and had kids something came up they had to drop everything in the middle of the day and go back into witness protection and that's why nobody's been able to find them or see them so again speculations about joseph speculations about summer and then investigators also had to consider the idea that the mcstays may have crossed into mexico for a planned short vacation and then end up the victims of a kidnapping or a homicide in mexico and this would account for the pre-planning for what appeared to be a trip to mexico the video of a family of four walking 
into Mexico around the time their vehicle arrives, and then it's towed from near the border crossing and the lack of any further communication or bank activity from the family. So let's just say that for whatever reason, they wanted to go celebrate Joseph Jr.'s birthday four days later, but wanted to do it down in Mexico for some reason. And they enter into Mexico, and within a few hours or a day of entering into Mexico, they become victims of a crime of violence, such as a kidnapping or a homicide. You know, there's a good chance that they'd never be seen again if that was the case, and that would fit along with the story. So you've got all these different possibilities. Everybody's spitting out the different options, and investigators have to look into everything. They have to rule some stuff out, but there's going to be some stuff they can't rule out. And meanwhile, the story is reaching a national level of attention at this point with major media personalities such as Nancy Grace bringing attention to the case and asking viewers to keep an eye out for the missing family. And this actually, like, it was one of the sons, I can't remember which one it was, but had a really distinguished birthmark on his forehead. I mean, it was, it was something you would notice immediately upon meeting the child and I liken it to like the Mikhail Gorbachev birthmark that's just prominent on the forehead that you just can't not see when you look at this person. And so pretty much any child with this large birthmark on the forehead that could have been around the same age as I think it was Gianni would elicit a sighting, even if they weren't with the parents, because I guess that's the other thing you also have to potentially throughout there is what if these somebody kidnaps the kids kills the parents and then brings them down into mexico so that they can raise these kids in you know in another country again total speculation but again stranger things have happened so there's everybody's trying to do their part they're calling all these tips and locations law enforcement's checking these out and then on June 19, 2010, four months after the family home was searched for the first time, the family's story was aired on America's Most Wanted. And now this would create even more tips and leads, but still nothing solid. And sadly, the family's home that they'd worked so hard on went into foreclosure as the payments in the bank stopped. And so in August, several family members gathered and moved all the belongings out before a new family moved into the Fallbrook house. And in November of 2010, Joseph's father noticed something strange while going through his son's business finances. He found some emails regarding suspicions from about money handling by one of Joseph's business partners, Charles Merritt. Charles was the last person known to see Joseph alive that day and was the person he was meeting for lunch when he told his father he needed to end their phone conversation. Investigators looked into the information provided by Patrick but without evidence that the family had been victims of crime, no action was taken against Charles. And again, this is all going to come back to the fact that it's very hard to investigate anybody as a suspect when you don't even have a known crime. Like, yes, there's going to be some stuff, and we'll talk about it in the next part, but there's going to be some stuff about these business finances that don't quite add up, but questionable money practices at a business or anything along those lines that's often handled with inside the business without police ever being involved and there's really no reason for the police to look at 
suspects, if they, especially at this point, they're still believing that the family likely just went into Mexico on their own. So how do you investigate somebody for a crime when you don't have a crime? And three years would pass with the occasional reported sighting or tip, but as far as law enforcement could tell, the family up and moved to Mexico without reason and were choosing to avoid detection or had met harm in Mexico. This thought process led to an April 9, 2013 press conference by the San Diego Sheriff's Department, during which investigators announced they were treating the case as a voluntary disappearance in New Mexico. And this didn't stop the internet detectives and families from continuing to search for answers to the disappearance. Despite what law enforcement said publicly, the family was convinced that the Mexico angle was wrong and something had happened to the next days. Summer's sister pointed out the fact that her sister's passport was expired, and while she could enter Mexico without the passport, she would not be able to get back into the United States with the rest of her family. And, and so this kind of defeats that whole, they went just down to Mexico for a day or two to have you know, some type of a little family getaway in Mexico, because yes, uh, Joseph's passport, I believe, was good, but Summer's was expired. The kids didn't need passports to get in Mexico, and she didn't need a passport to get into Mexico, but she needed a passport to get back home. So it wouldn't make any sense if she had looked into what are the requirements for getting in and out, out of Mexico. She would know this, and so she's not going to risk going down into Mexico with her family if she knows she could potentially get stuck down in Mexico and not be able to get back to the United States or just even deal with the headache of potentially that happening it just wouldn't be worth it for a couple days so that kind of throws off the whole well they just went down there for a couple days planned on coming back but they, they met met with you know follow play while they're in Mexico and if the McStays planned on starting a new life in Mexico, why didn't they take out some of the $100,000 they had in the bank as cash? They would need money to start a new life, and since there had been no activity on their accounts, investigators couldn't explain how they were making ends meet. Several sets of human remains were found in the immediate years after the family went missing, and it was usually the skeletal remains of a lone male, a victim of suicide or homicide, that were compared to Joseph. Each time investigators thought, it could be a match. They would call and ask the family things such as, has Joseph ever broken a bone? And each time it would be determined the remains did not belong to their missing loved one. And this again follows along the lines of a family annihilator situation where maybe Joseph kills his family, then you know drives around for a few days, and then decides he's got nothing left to live for and kills himself. So he's found separately from, from the other three, and if they identified Joseph off alone, deceased, they could start to speculate, A, the family didn't go to Mexico, and B, Summer and the kids are probably somewhere else deceased. But despite all these lone male victim remains they're finding, none of them are matching up to Joseph. But in November of 2013, the discovery of four remains in the desert outside Victorville, California would change this case forever. So stay tuned for part two of the McStay family murders. We will cover that in our next episode. Thank you guys again for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon and PayPal at truebluecrime.com.
Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.